Let me take a moment to uh, pray for us, and it's good to hear the update from Leo. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this Thanksgiving season, Lord, we, we want to be thankful people. Lord, we have been blessed with so much. We've been given so much in your Son. We've been given so many blessings in this country, in relationships with people, material blessings, spiritual blessings, God. We thank you for Leo and Missy and how you are providing for them. We thank you that they are being, that the truth is being poured out in their lives and they're trying to grab it as fast as they can. We pray that it would never get old, that the truth and the glories of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ would never grow old for them, but they would be renewed and refreshed uh, day by day, week by week, that you would continue to equip them for a lifelong ministry of serving the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you have heard the term first world problem? First world problem. So this is a phrase that Teresa and I use when we make fun of each other whenever we have a complaint, when it seems like the complaint is relatively trivial or minor, but can be frustrating at times. A website compiled this list of these first world problems, these, these problems that, you know, we might find trivial, but, you know, let me just read some of them to you. Some of them are kind of unbelievable. Here's one example. I dislike the fact that a trip to my family's second home involves a six-hour airplane ride to a different continent. A simple cottage getaway would be nice. First world problem. Here's another one. I just got back from this boring trip my dad made me take for spring break. I was like, and this is where it's all caps now. So picture this. Dad, I've been to the Bahamas a bajillion times. Can't I go to Mexico this year? And he just said no and made me go on a cruise. Totally rude. First world problem. All right, one more. This is from a traveler who loves his Dunkin' Donuts and couldn't get it when he was on the road. Italy does not run on Duncan, and that's not flying too well with me right about now. So, so we, we hear about these, and they're kind of amusing. Uh, well, because for many of us, we don't own that second home and have the problem of, wow, we got to get on that plane ride for six hours to make it to our second home. Many of us aren't forced to go to the Bahamas a bajillion times to go on a cruise. And many of us aren't suffering because Italy doesn't run on Duncan. But before, before we pass judgment on these guys, uh, we should be honest with ourselves and realize we're probably not that different from these people. How many times have we complained about the traffic or the weather or our kids or the internet speed or the fact we have nothing to wear? And these problems that we tend to complain about might be very amusing to other people. Think of a Syrian refugee being bombed every day by government forces. They're probably not complaining that the traffic is not what they think it should be and the weather isn't quite nice. When I was in Southeast Asia for a mission trip, uh, the electricity was usually cut off once a day, several times a week. There just wasn't enough electricity to go around, so there was these you know, rolling blackouts. And so over there, in certain parts of the country, running water, hot water, even reliable electricity are luxuries. They're not necessities. 
But our culture, you know, in our culture, we can tend to think that these things are, you know, we could tend to think we deserve a trouble-free life, that you know, we deserve a life free from inconveniences, a life where the traffic is always good, the weather's always perfect, kids are always behaved, the internet is always fast, and the perfect outfit always falls right out of the closet into our lap. Yet here, this is where the culture does get something right when they have this phrase, first world problem. You see, in light of bigger problems, in light of what other people suffer, when they use this phrase, first world problem, they're really saying you have no right to complain. And in light of all the blessings that we as believers, we as followers of Jesus Christ enjoy, there is a sense that all of our problems are really first world problems. And today, God would have us, you know, as we look in his word this afternoon, he wants us to give thanks in every moment, in every place, in every situation. God wants us to give thanks in every moment, in every place, in every situation. And we're going to do that by looking at the life of, life of Jesus Christ. So I prepared for this message. I read this book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. He was a pastor in England in the 1600s. I'm going to refer to him several times. Uh, it's a book I highly recommend. And in fact, I recommend it so much that I actually have a pastoral giveaway. We have 12 copies uh, that are free of charge. They're going to be out in the book nook. So if you go out the left, Patty Heidegger is going to help me give them out because uh, Teresa and I actually have to duck out of the service immediately afterwards. But Patty's going to help me. Uh, here's the catch, though. They're free, but if you take one, you have to promise before God. You have to agree before God that you're going to read the book in the next six months. So don't take one unless you're, you, you promise before God you're going to read it in the next six months. It's actually not a long book. It's about 130 pages. But it's a rich book. It's a very helpful book. So let's look at our passage once again. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The focus today is giving thanks in all circumstances. And this verse is located in the final section of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is giving some final applications to his audience. There's a triplet of instructions that come at you rapid fire. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks. Our focus is giving thanks in light of the Thanksgiving holiday. And I just want to say up front that anyone can give thanks. Anyone in a good mood can give thanks. The Phillies just won the World Series. Easy to give thanks. Uh, an unbeliever who wins the lottery, they can give thanks. They might even thank their lucky stars. You don't need Christ or the Holy Spirit to give thanks. The th giving thanks we're talking about here is different. It's a continual internal posture of giving thanks to God. It's continual because it doesn't depend on being in a good mood. And it's internal because it doesn't depend on external circumstances. It's a thankfulness of the heart. I have two boys. You guys, most of you probably know them. Four-year-old named Timmy and two-year-old named Hudson. They're very sweet. They're obedient most of the time. They're lots of fun most of the time, I'll be honest. Uh, but there are times when they're tired or hungry and then they become irrational, irritable. All sense and all reason stops with them. And they lose all vocabulary, 
vocabulary. And the only words they have left are no and I don't want to. Like that, no and I don't want to. So Hudson, let's wash our hands. No. Uh, Timmy, it's time to eat. No, I don't want to. Or Hudson, let's get in the van. No. And sometimes Teresa and I are in a rush and we don't have time to discipline them or explain to them, you know, why this is disobedient, why they need to uh, obey God and they need a timeout. So we resort to what every parent does, bribery. <laughs> we bribe them. So, Timmy, get in the van. No. Uh, Timmy, get in the van, and then you can play with Daddy's phone. And then suddenly a huge grin flashes across his face, and this angry, irrational, irritable child becomes the most happy, the most joyful, the most compliant child in the world. That's not thankfulness. That's, that's bribery. See, that's not continual because it's dependent on him being in a good mood at that moment. And it's not, certainly not internal because it's external, dependent on whether or not he has daddy's phone and he feels happy at that moment. What we're talking about in this passage is a continual and internal posture of thankfulness to God. And only a Christian, by the power of the Spirit, can do that. And I want us to understand and appreciate the context in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is the author, and he wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica on his second mission, which was planted during his second missionary journey. <clears throat> Before he got to Thessalonica to plant that church, he was actually in the city of Philippi, planting another church there. But there was strong opposition to the preaching of the gospel. The opposition was so strong... Paul was stripped, he was beaten, he was thrown into prison. And then we're thinking, well, how did they respond to that? Were they discouraged? How did they feel about just that kind of response to the gospel? Let's look at Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We see instead of complaining... Oh, God, I thought we were supposed to be planting this church in Philippi. Now you've thrown us in prison. Now how, how are we going to be planting this church? Well, they were praying and singing and trusting the Lord. And soon after that, some pretty crazy stuff happens, an earthquake. God sends this earthquake. It breaks open the prison. All the chains are broken. The warden is about to commit suicide because he's afraid all his prisoners have escaped. And then, well, before I tell you the ending, I don't want to spoil it. If you've never had a chance to read it, you can experience the ending for yourself in Acts chapter 16, how it all goes down. But we know that Paul does survive. In Acts chapter 17, he travels to Thessalonica, and then he spends the next couple weeks doing the same thing in Philip, what he did in Philippi, planting a church, taking the next couple weeks explaining and proving why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose. And then he reflects on his experience in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So we see this pattern where Paul is shamefully treated, he suffers, and he's preaching the gospel, he's planting the, the church in the midst of much conflict. As the gospel is moving forward, we see that the enemies of the gospel push back hard and resist. Acts 17.5, this is what happens in Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So for Paul, much conflict isn't, well, these people just turn away, they don't like his message, they give him a cold shoulder. No, the, the conflict is a mob, the city in uproar, a riot, and getting your house attacked. And on top of that, because of this riot, Paul is torn away suddenly from the church before he really has a chance to establish things. His ministry there is cut off prematurely. Paul, in his letter, he describes himself as spiritual parents to the church in Thessalonica. He describes himself as a gentle nursing mother and as an encouraging father who is trying to raise up this new church to follow Jesus. Have you ever been separated or torn away from someone you love? Many of you know Ashish and Sanjeevani. They were married a couple years ago. Uh, and after having waited for many years to find each other, they, God finally brought them together. They were finally married. Sanjeevani left her family and her prestigious university job in India. And Ashish was willing to do, make whatever sacrifices necessary to make the marriage work. But soon after their wedding, they were torn away from each other because of visa issues, visa and paperwork difficulties. Ashish described it like this. Being in different countries meant that we were not always able to be there when we needed each other. And so the physical separation was painful, especially right after the marriage. Th those weeks of separation turned into months and then a year. And they felt tested and even at times questioned God's plan. Yet, as they were waiting, torn apart from each other, they found joy in each other. And through the miracle of modern technology, they were able to connect with each other, uh, send messages three times a day. I'm looking at Sanjeevani. Did he do that? <laughs> She's nodding her head. Okay, so you know, he sent messages to her three times a day. And they fought for faith. They found encouragement in God and in the words of one preacher. God's, and this is, this is how it goes, God's impossible promises are intended to destroy faith in ourselves and deliver us to faith in God. And after those 15 long months, God finally reunited them after being torn apart. Paul, as he writes this letter, he writes as someone who has been torn apart from those he loves. And yet he writes, give thanks in all circumstances. Paul isn't writing from a private jet. He isn't writing from an ivory tower disconnected from the messiness of life. He is writing as someone who has suffered, who's been shamed, who's been run out of town and torn away from those he loves. And yet he wastes no time practicing what he preaches. We look at 1 Thessalonians right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2. We Give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You see how much Paul covers all his bases, always, all of you, constantly. And maybe you're thinking, well, that, that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, Jesus said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'm, I'm just hoping to maybe fly under the radar, fly under the attacks. Well, if you take a, look at a, uh, take a closer look at his audience, you find out that Paul is writing 
to the members of his church plant. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul's writing to his church, and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. And again, two chapters later, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So this command, give thanks in all circumstances, is coming from the Apostle Paul, the suffering apostle, to the suffering church. And that's all of us. And I know you can relate. Church, I know you can relate. The holidays are a a joyful and happy time for many people. And yet it's also a, a, a difficult and sad and depressing time for many people. Many of us are suffering. We have a number of ladies here who are recent widows. We have one sister who lost her father this past year. So this is her first Thanksgiving without her father. We have, fa- we have church family members suffering chronic illness. We have one sister in the church whose full-time job is to care for her mother. And on top of that, caring for her two children. And one of whom, I mean, they want... From time to time, I I know that her son is just rushed off to the hospital. So on top of caring for her mother, just caring for her two children. So church, how can we give thanks even in those circumstances? How can we give thanks if, if you're the Apostle Paul and you're suffering, you've been shamed, you've been run out of town, you've been torn away from those whom you love? Well, the key is to really look at the last part of that verse. Look, Look with me to that phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. It's impossible unless you belong to Jesus. We can't do it on our own. It's only through our spirit-forged union with Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. Jesus says, if you remain in me and I remain in, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. John 15. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Through, uh, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, again, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So how can we give thanks in all those, in every circumstance, all situations, at all places, in all times? It is only through him. Through him, we give thanks as we see life through the eyes of faith. And it begins and ends by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this is what God's people have done all throughout the ages. If we look at Psalm 69, for instance, Psalm 69, verses 29 and 30, the psalm writer says, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. We see in these two verses, back to back, we have affliction and pain, yet praising God, magnifying God with thanksgiving. So praise in the middle of pain, thanks in the middle of affliction. I did a quick search on all the psalms, just to get an idea. Well, how frequent do the psalm writers give thanks? Do they praise God? 
So I, I looked up all these different phrases. I looked up give thanks. I looked up praise. I looked up worship. I looked up sing. I looked up rejoice and found out that these things, are, these things occur in the Psalms 350 times, just in the Psalms alone. So no matter what is going on, no matter what the circumstances are, God's people are praising God. And for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, those of us who are trusting in Christ alone, we look to Jesus. We look to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his future return, and that gives us the power to give thanks in all circumstances. Jeremiah Burroughs writes, No one ever denied himself as much as Jesus Christ did. He gave his cheeks to those who struck him. He opened not his mouth. He was as a lamb when he was led to the slaughter. He made no noise in the street. He denied himself above all and was willing to empty himself. So he was the most contented person in the world. So as we consider the life of Jesus Christ, we see a life of simplicity and humility. And this keeps us from the if-only trap. If only my paycheck were bigger, if only my home were more comfortable, if only my car were nicer, if, I, if only I hadn't fallen on hard times, then I could really give thanks. But we have to look at the life of Jesus. He, was, he is the king of kings, born in a manger, a stable for animals, because there wasn't even any space in the cheap hotel, the cheap motel. And yet, Jesus Christ didn't complain. He left his father's side. He left the glories of heaven. He left those worshiping angels to enter a life of poverty. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Maybe you're suffering the sting of rejection. Maybe you're a single person out there and you've just been frustrated that you haven't found that relationship you've been desiring for so long. Maybe you're a parent who's invested so much into your children, but they haven't reciprocated that. They haven't given any thanks. They've rejected you. They've rejected your faith. Maybe you've been searching for deeper friendships in the church, and it, it seems like you're always doing the inviting, but no one is reciprocating back. Maybe you've been sharing the good news with others, but they're simply not interested, or they're shunning you as a result. I had a friend from Iran, follower of Jesus Christ, and he had such a desire to share Jesus with his other Muslim friends and, and family. He had a good friend of his. He just wanted to share Jesus with him, but his friend told him up front, after he knew his friend had been converted, if you tell me about Jesus, this friendship is over. Rejection stings. Rejection stinks. And yet, when we follow Jesus, we, we let his life and ministry shape our understanding of something even like rejection. In the Gospels, we know that the places where Jesus did his mightiest works were his places of greatest rejection. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children, with five loaves and two fish. And then he preaches at Capernaum and Bethsaida. And then after he preaches, though... Many of his disciples take offense at him, and they turn away. And from the world's eyes, he seems like a failure. 
But this is how Jesus responds. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's fascinating to see that Jesus, on the heels of this rejection, this big rejection, Jesus thanks God for the rejection because he sees that God is God and that he has the power and the sovereignty, the authority to hide the truth of the gospel from the proud, but reveal them from the from the, and re, but reveal them to the humble. He thanks God for that. We have to move on from the life of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Probably the greatest act of oppression in history. And maybe you've experienced oppression or or been the victim of injustice. And we have to fight oppression and injustice wherever we see it. But as we, as we do that, we look to Jesus and see, again, something amazing. When it was time for him to die, Jesus gave thanks. Jesus, the innocent one who was oppressed to die the death of a condemned criminal, nails would pierce his hands and feet. All the sins of all God's people for all time who would ever believe would be placed on him, and then he would be forsaken by the Father. And as he looks towards that cross at the Last Supper, this is what he does. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So as we look to Jesus, we see no one who is more holy, more pure, more law-abiding, more loving, no one who suffered more injustice, no one who gave up more to redeem us, no one who was more deprived of his rightful recognition and glory. He knows all this. He knows all of this, and yet when he knows that his body will be broken, his blood will be poured out, and his response is to give thanks. At the cross, we see the greatest evil and the greatest injustice. And yet God takes that, turns that evil into good. He turns our sin into salvation. Jesus thanks God in all circumstances, even evil circumstances, because he knows that God is all-wise, all-powerful, and always good. And therefore, we give thanks as well. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We serve an almighty God where all things work for good. So we can give thanks in weaknesses, in hardships, in persecution, in suffering. Because we know at the cross, God has demonstrated already how much he loves us, how greatly he loves us. And this reassures us no matter what kind of tribulation you might be going through. And I just want to pause real quick to just say tribulation is hard and it hurts. Just because you're giving thanks in it doesn't make the pain go away. doesn't make it any less painful. Leon Morris writes, Tribulation is unpleasant. Yet who in the midst of tribulation would not give thanks when he knows that the Father 
who loves him so greatly, has permitted that tribulation only in order that his wise and merciful purpose might be worked out. That's why the psalmist says, it is good that I am afflicted, because it comes from God, who is good and does good. So we can rest in confidence that God knows better. He sees better. He's a better planner. We can rest in confidence that his wise and merciful purposes are being worked out in our lives for our good and his ultimate glory. So what kind of tribulation are you having to walk through in the moment? Are you having to deal with weakness, hardship, or suffering? Even in those situations, we can give thanks Because these are from the hand of our loving Father who works all things for our good. And the cross is that supreme example where God takes evil and turns it into good. Jeremiah Burroughs writes, God, when he will bring life, brings it out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow. And he brings prosperity out of adversity. Yes, and many times brings grace out of sin. It is the way of God to bring all good out of evil, not only to overcome the evil, but to make the evil work toward our good. So you might be dealing with the pain of death. You might be dealing with sorrow or adversity. You might be trapped in sin or evil, but the purposes of God, even if you don't see it now, is that God brings life out of death, joy out of sorrow, prosperity out of adversity, grace out of sin, good out of evil. God makes evil work for good because this is our God. But we don't just look to the life and death of Jesus. We also look to his return if we're going to have power to give thanks in all circumstances. We see that, we have to first see that our greatest problem, however, isn't our health, our finances, our relationships, our children. Our greatest problem is our sin and the fact that we've been separated from a holy God and that we are suffering not just physical but spiritual death under God's judgment for our sin. And the greatest problem is the curse of sin and the sting of death. No matter whether you're young or old, rich or poor, no matter what ethnicity you are, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have broken God's law and all are doomed to die. But the resurrection, resurrection of Christ, guarantee, which guarantees our resurrection, solves that biggest problem. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. But the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of the problem of our sin, the problem of our death, the problem of our judgment, in light of how God has solved that perfectly and completely in Jesus Christ, any other problem so much smaller, seems so much problem smaller. Any other problem 
is really a first world problem. So that no matter what we're going through, we can give thanks to God because of our victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know you're headed home, you know Jesus is coming back again. He is taking us home. Our bodies are going to be resurrected. They're going to be transformed. We're going to have these immortal, imperishable, eternal bodies. When you know you're headed home, it makes all the difference in the world. Soldiers deployed in Afghanistan, they don't enjoy the comforts of home. Sometimes soldiers, as they're stationed up on the, near the front lines, uh, they're using the bathroom or the shower, and they hear the incoming enemy fire alarm. And so what do they do? Do they finish what they're doing or do they run for cover? I've heard that military toilet paper feels like sandpaper. I haven't tried it for myself. Hot water runs out when you're on deployment. Sometimes there's so little bottled water that soldiers have to choose between quenching their thirst or taking a shower. And just when it's time to go to sleep, sometimes it sounds like a tornado outside because the Air Force likes to do their jet maintenance at night. Soldiers living in barracks and tents using sandpaper for toilet paper, hearing those Air Force jets at night, they know it's temporary. They know they're going home where they can use the bathroom in peace. There's going to be plenty of hot water. They're going to get a good night's rest. And so they can give thanks because they know they're headed home. Church, we are headed home. We're pilgrims passing through this earth on our way to the heavenly city. And the glories of heaven await us. And sometimes we, we, this can feel like home and we can get too comfortable. But when we remember where we're headed, then we can give thanks even when the road getting us there is a little bit bumpy. And so church, as we see the life of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his future return through the power of the Spirit, church, we will give thanks. We can give thanks in all circumstances. As we, begin, as we begin wrapping up here, I want us to look at this text once again. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I want us to look at that phrase, this is the will of God. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's give thanks in all circumstances isn't something you're going to find on a fortune cookie. Fortune cookies, they're meant to be cute, cute, maybe clever, but you leave them on the table, you throw them in the trash, or maybe you take a picture of it and post it on social media to make fun of the, how stupid or how silly the fortune was. God's word's the opposite. He's giving us commands to obey. This, 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 what we see here this afternoon, give thanks in all circumstances, this is a command coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, Come, a command coming from our God. And so we have to be on guard because sin crouches at our door. And we can so easily slip into sinful patterns and live in the power of our flesh rather than the power of the spirit. We can break this command so easily. I know I've done it. And it can be stunning how fast we break this command. Just look throughout the Bible. God rescues his people, Israel, from Egypt, from slavery, sends those ten plagues, parts the Red Sea, 
Israel goes through dry land. Egypt's army is swept away. In Exodus 15, the whole nation is celebrating their great salvation. They thank God in Exodus 15, 21. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's Exodus 15, 21. But if you look just a little bit further, two verses later, and exactly three days later, to be precise, the, water's a little, the water doesn't taste very good. And the whole country is singing a different tune. Exodus 15, 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled. They complained against Moses. So see how fast that the people of Israel go from singing praises to the Lord, celebrating their salvation, and then grumbling against him. We need to watch out because that's us. I'd like to ask the band to start coming forward as I wrap up here. We'll, we'll do a closing song here. The opposite of giving thanks is complaining. It's grumbling. And I want, us to, I want, I want to warn you, church, warning myself, really, that it's more evil, more wicked, more terrible for Christians to complain than non-Christians. It's more evil for, for believers to complain than for unbelievers. Because the more you have, the more evil it is to complain. And this makes sense. We can understand if a homeless person complains because they have no home. But we're probably not going to be that sympathetic if a billionaire who's got 10 vacation homes complains that he can't find that 11th perfect vacation home. Not too much sympathy there. And we, as God's people, have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We are infinitely wealthy in Christ. So how dare we complain? In light of all that God has given to us, all that God has done for us, it is so much more wicked for us to complain. In light of everything, in light of all the problems that God has solved for us, the biggest problem, our sin, our death, Every problem that a believer faces is really a first world problem. We have no right to complain. And complaining is really a denial of the gospel. When, you, when we complain, we're basically saying God doesn't love us. He's not working all things for good. Our biggest problem isn't our sin. It's something else. And our greatest treasure isn't Christ. It's something else we need. That's how evil and how wicked complaining is. Burroughs gives us a test to see if we are a thankful people or a complaining people. He says that the thankful man wonders how much he has, but the unthankful man wonders how little he has. So the thankful man wonders how much he has, but the unthankful man wonders how little he has. So as you go into this next week, in light of this Thanksgiving holiday, reflect on your own life. Do you find yourself Thankful to God for how much you have, for so many blessings that he has, for the countless blessings God has given to you in Christ. Or do you find yourself wondering how little you have? And as a family, we've been walking this out in our own way. Each family, each person needs to apply this in the way that God has chosen you to apply it. Uh, we are, we have, we're blessed with two children. We desire additional children, so we're trusting the Lord, we're praying, we're waiting 
And while we're praying and waiting for God to provide, we're learning simply to give thanks to God for what he has already given to us, the two children he's already blessed us with. And the cure to that sin of complaining is everything we've just been talking about, to give thanks in all circumstances. And as an added bonus, as you give thanks in all circumstances, you will be doing battle. You'll be fighting and defeating the powers of darkness, Satan himself. Burroughs writes, the devil loves to fish in troubled waters. So as you look to Jesus, as you cultivate that heart of thankfulness in all circumstances, that'll protect you from the devil who loves to fish in troubled waters. When you give thanks in all circumstances, you're basically hanging up a no fishing allowed sign. So church, as we look to Jesus, as we look to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his future return, church, let us give thanks in all circumstances. Amen.